kleine paar denkt, hop, geht mir kein Sachlin, die Trop. Hey everyone, welcome to Kill Me Now with Judy Gold. I'm your host, Judy Gold. And okay, so I know this week I'm supposed to do a rant. And last night I was working with Liz Glazer. She was opening for me in Pennsylvania. We had a great fucking show. She's hilarious. You know, all we talk about because we're Jews. I'm gonna, this is a heavy Jew Bell episode. I'm just warning everyone and I might, do, you know, multiple rings before this conversation gets really deep. But so I'm talking to Liz and, you know, all we, all we, all Jews, any Jew, right? All right. Wait a minute. Okay. Any Jew right now, unless they're, I I don't know, living in a cave, well, I shouldn't say that because a lot of them are living in caves. Okay, uh, hopefully. But unless they're completely out of it, this is all they're thinking about is what is going on in Israel. And what I want to tackle today with our guest, who I'm very thrilled about, is questions that I think people have that need an answer. So that you can form your opinions based on fact and based on history, it's really a due diligence episode because when I, as a Jew, am trying to explain what this feels like, it is so hard to get through to people who don't want to hear it, don't understand, like read sound bites and have no fucking idea what the fuck is going on. And it's really frustrating. And frankly, I have never been so scared. I was scared on October 8th. I was scared on October 7th, but I'm recording this on October 29th. You're hearing this on Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. But I am tremendously more scared than I was two, three weeks ago. Okay. So I asked our guest now our guest, she should be a guest just to be a guest because, you know, she's fascinating. Oh, sorry. That was my pen. She's fascinating. Uh, but you know, she's really close with Liz Glazer and I was talking and, you know, Liz told me that our guest wrote her thesis on this crisis, the Palestinian-Israel crisis. So to be completely transparent, I put a list of questions together and I, I let her see them so she would be completely prepared because as, you know, as Jewesses, we like to, we like to learn. We're a learning religion. So ladies and gentlemen, and they, thems, um, today we have Dana Aaliyah Levinson. Woo! Here today. She is a writer. She is a performer. She is an uh activist, advocate. I mean, there's she is so many things, but she's very knowledgeable about this topic. And she's also a member of the LGBTQIA plus uh community, which is important to me. Uh, because I, 
was in Israel this year on a mission for LGBTQ plus rights. And I saw Israel through the lens of a member of our community. And I, I think I've been to Israel as a mother. I've been to Israel as a comedian, performer, and I've been to Israel as an LGBTQ. And, and I've seen Israel through many lenses. Dana is also from Comedy Royalty. Dana's maternal grandfather wrote for The Bob and Ray Show, which was the fucking best radio show ever. My parents fucking loved it. She's got comedy roots. Um, but Dana, woo! Hello. Hi. We're doing it. Uh, we're doing it. Now, Dana, I know a lot about the Israel situation. Okay. And as I said, I've been there three times and saw Israel through three different lenses. I'm also a Jew. My father served in World War II. I'm just doing this so I can get through this fucking story. Okay. Uh, my mother, uh, you know, definitely dealt with a lot of anti Semitism. And I grew up in a household where the Holocaust was mentioned pretty much every day and that everyone hated us and be careful. And, you know, this is how I grew up thinking my mother was overreacting. But in the back of my head, I mean, I'm sure you felt the same thing, even though you're way younger than me. Still cannot compute how that happened, how I know it happened, but that it happened and the generations of trauma, which, you know what? I can start talking about the trauma. I'm going to just read something from your wiki page. Okay, Dana? Okay, so let's just start with this. You were born in Great Neck. Your father's a dentist of Latvian and Lithuanian Ashkenazi Jewish descent. And your mother, Amy, the -hmm. jewelry designer, is of German and French Ashkenazi, as well as Portuguese, Moroccan, and Turkish Sephardi descent. Mm-hmm. Okay? You There's s- a whole lot of trauma in there. Whole right. Lot of- that yeah. is traumatic. So your family has been kicked out of every single one of those countries. Yeah. I. So it's funny. Like I say, the Sephardi branch, I say Portuguese, Moroccan, and Turkish. But actually what it was, was that they were kicked out of Portugal, went to Morocco, then they were kicked out of Morocco and went to Turkey. And then they were kicked out of Turkey and came to the U.S. Okay. So, and this yeah. is the common thread with so many Jewish people, correct? Correct. Now, Dana, you went to the new school and um, mm-hmm. you studied music. I was a music major, by the way. I just want you to know, I know you're, you, well, your whole life you studied music, but you did get a degree in international relations and your thesis was about this conflict, correct? Yeah. So I was, a, I was a theater major. Right. Um, and then I also was, they call the major global studies, but right. it was basically an international relations program. They, uh, they differentiated it by saying that international relations looks at it from the top down and global studies looks at it from the bottom up. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It, it was this, it's the same thing. Right. Um, and yeah, so in that program, 
I focused on the Middle East, um, and I had a sub-focus in international human rights advocacy. Um, and I did a lot of focusing on the French-Algerian relationship and then the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And then I wrote my thesis paper um, for that program on how ethno-nationalisms are formed and used the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as my case study. And, and I've also just been a voracious consumer of Jewish history for my entire life beyond that. Right. Uh, and a lot of your writing is based in that, in Jewish history. Okay. So, Dana, I spoke to you on the phone last night while Liz and I were driving to Pottstown, Pennsylvania in the fucking traffic. It took over an hour to get out of New York, but fuck it. And I put this list of questions that, as I told, as I said before, that I gave you because th- the purpose of my podcast this week is to educate, is to ask questions that I think people want the answer to and explain this in a factual way. I have never been this scared. Have you? It's been, I was just talking about this with a Jewish friend. It's like, should we leave the country? Right, right. Yeah. Because I was talking to Liz in the car and she's like, you know, my relatives in Israel actually feel insulated because they're in the homeland and they, you know, but here, I, I don't know, we're recording this on, as I said, on October 29th. Right now in Russia, a plane landed from Tel Aviv and there are mobs of people trying to kill the Jews on that plane. Is that correct? It's actually worse than that. So actually, it's interesting that you bring that up because my um, I have a relatives who still live in Russia um, that it's a long story how we reconnected, but... Um, they live in Dagestan in the area that this is currently going on. Because there's and a there's in, a, a, Jew, a small Jewish population there. Yeah, and I've been in contact with her all day, and she's telling me that it's way worse than what we're seeing um, online, and that um, it's as far as people dragging people off of buses and off the streets and interrogating them about whether they're Jews, not about whether they're Israelis, about whether they're Jews, Um she said it's she said the police are barely doing anything. It's it's a real nightmare over there right now. Makes me sick. It makes me physically, yeah. physically ill. Uh, you say they're Jews, not Israelis, which I think is such an important point. That people cannot separate. The. Israeli Jew from any other Jew not that we want to, not that we yeah, want I, to. I was going to say, I think really it's more of a matter of separating Jews overall, Israeli Jews included, from right. Bibi Netanyahu's government. Exactly. Is, yeah. uh, so that is what the main point here is. You can believe that Israel has a right to exist and not agree with the policies of the government at this time. Just like in America, was I say this on stage, Dana, that like I say, look, Israel is a very young country. It's a democracy. And the people in the government right now are a bunch of fucking assholes. That's what I say. And then I say, wait, what other country does that remind me of? And then they laugh because it's our country. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yeah. So- yeah. Like when you say anti-Zionist, what does that mean to you? So for me, 
first, I think we need to to define the word Zionism, which for me is simply the belief that Jews have a right to autonomy and self-determination and safety in our indigenous homelands. Right. And I also think it's really important because I think there's a huge misconception because of the way that Christianity and Islam and Judaism are often lumped together. Mm-hmm. That there's only, first off, there's only 15 million Jews in the world. Second off, we're not a Wait, really- Wait, can I big, just say something? That would yeah. be two-tenths of 1% of the population. Yeah. Two-tenths of 1%. Go ahead. Correct. And- Secondly, because we're always clumped together, people tend to conceptualize us as being part of a religious group. But the reality is we are an ethno-religious group. And I always say, actually, I think personally, indigeneity wars around Israel and Palestine are like useless. Right. I think it's a really important paradigm to sort of understand who Jews are and where we come from, that our self-conception through the ages and our connection to the land of Israel has been similar to First Nations Americans. And when we say to another Jew, like, oh, you're a member of the tribe, right. we mean it literally. Right. Like, the best sort of lens, I think, to view Jews through is through the lens of tribe. First that. Okay. So I think like any indigenous tribe to a particular land that has a historical connection to a particular land Yes, I think that Jews have a right to have autonomy and self-determination in that land. Agreed. Um, and I think there are, the issue is, I think that the Western left has sort of bastardized the word Zionism and turned it into kind of an epithet. Mm-hmm. And um, I have questioned in the past um, when there have been other, you know, Israel-Hamas conflagrations, like back in 2021, I'm like, are people defining Zionism as just like, oh, what the Israeli government does? Or do they understand that it means the right of Jews to self-determine in our ancestral lands? And back in 2021, I thought that most people just didn't understand the term. Right. And I thought that oh, they're just against Netanyahu's policies, they're against the occupation of the West Bank, they're against settlements, they're against the blockade, and many Israelis are against these things too. Um, Netanyahu's approval rating right now is like 30%. Right. And so I sort of rationalized it away, but I feel like this time I'm starting to go, oh, actually a lot of people are defining it the same way that Jews define it. And to me... If you are defining it as just the right of Jews to exist freely and safely in our ancestral lands, and you're against that, then yes, I think that's anti-Semitism. Right. Okay. Okay. In my lifetime, I have never seen it conflated more than it is right now. Um, I mean, if I was going to give an example, someone said to me, it's like if the Native Americans came back here and we're like, get out, get off. But we have always lived in this area. Yeah, that is that is one of also the biggest historical misconceptions that like Rome threw all the Jews out and then we came back 2000 years later and we're like, this is ours now. Right. Which is not at all what happened. What happened was multiple times throughout history, actually including in the 600s, 
um, Jews helped the Persians in their war against the Byzantines and then sort of reestablished a Jewish foothold in the land of Israel um, until the Arab Caliphate showed up and Arabized the Levant and threw all the Jews out. And then throughout, I shouldn't say threw them all out, they're a mixture of things. But right. um, <sighs> there were Jews who stayed as well. And then throughout the ages, there was there were a lot of attempts of Jews to return. And what right. would happen is Jews would return, they would reach a certain population size, and then either the Arabs or later the Ottomans would massacre and ethnically cleanse them. And it would be like wash, rinse, and repeat. Right. Well, then when modern political Zionism happened, this was now, I think, like the sixth or seventh movement to try and regain Jewish control of our ancestral lands. And it started happening again. It started with the Hebron massacre and then also the Arab revolt in, in the mid-1930s, which resulted in a massacre of a bunch of Jewish civilians. And basically what happened was the Jews who were coming back to the land were looking back at history and also seeing what was happening in Germany right. and going, not this time. Right. We're not doing this again. And so they formed militias and started to fight back. Um, and that's sort of the backdrop of what eventually leads to partition and all of that. And right. so I see a lot of refrain from leftists that I'm friends with who are like, oh, it's simple. It's not complicated. Oh, my and God. People, I've never seen so many experts on this in the last. I mean, I've read multiple books. Uh, I don't consider myself an expert, but. It's amazing how these people really, it, within two weeks on TikTok, have learned, have, yeah, everything have, there is to know. I have personally seen people on my stories who say that they're just learning about this for the very first time. Right. And then two days later, start posting with the authority of an expert. Right. And I'm just like, I promise you that two days is not enough time to learn. Right. All of the complexities of what got us here and for you to speak on it without causing harm. Right. I promise you. And is it hard for you, because it's very hard for me, to even talk to those people right now? Yes. Uh, okay. Thank you. Okay. So we have established that we are indigenous to this land, that it is our homeland, that we have been kicked out, but we've never really been 100% gone. And uh, actually... Parts of Israel, like Bethlehem, uh, we're not even allowed there. Is that correct? We're not even allowed to go into, I mean, it's not, quote unquote, Israel right now, but, or yeah. labeled Israel, but there are parts of the land, which we have about, the Jews have about the size of New Jersey. Is that correct? Yeah. So I always sort of differentiate between the land of Israel and the state of Israel. Right. Um, usually when Jews talk about Excellent. the land of Israel, right. they mean all of the land from, you know, ancient times that Jews controlled. And also, I think something, just a sidebar to that, that's really important for people to understand is no, the Torah should not be taken as a factual historical right. accounting. However, there have been plenty of things in the Torah that have been corroborated. We know for a fact that the Jewish people coalesced into a people by the 1200s BC. They're referenced in um, an uh, Egyptian stele called the Merneptah stele. Um, there are 
extra biblical sources um, from Moab, which is would have been a part of modern-day Jordan, and from Assyria that reference um, the kings of Israel from the house of David. Like, so we know for a fact that— And, I mean, Israel, Jerusalem is mentioned over 600 times. Uh, correct, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, so, yeah. and so basically I'm saying that, like, history, genetics, um, archaeology, linguistics, all of that just— point to our indigeneity to the land of Israel. So just sort of reiterating that. But yes, to answer your question, so this sort of gets to the Oslo Accords, which, which split the West Bank into three territories, um, Area A, Area B, and Area C. Um, the idea was that Area A was immediately handed over to the Palestinian Authority for complete control. Then Area B was under Palestinian civil control, but Israeli, <clears throat> excuse me, Israeli security control. And then Area C is under full sort of Israeli control. And the idea was that over five years, each of those areas was going to be transferred 100% to the PA. Um, that didn't happen because Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated and Netanyahu became prime minister and did everything he could to make sure that, that didn't happen. Um, and then they tried to restart talks in um, 1999-2000 when Ehud Barak became prime minister um, and he was from the left-wing Labour Party, which was Rabin's party, and talks fell apart. The second intifada was launched, and basically we've been stuck in this status quo since then. So to answer your question, the reason why I had to talk about that is that Israelis do live in the West Bank um, in settlements, um, which the international community deems illegal, which I think are is important to recognize and talk about. That said, yes, there are areas of um, the West Bank that it would be impossible for a Jew to go to safely. Um, I mean, they could go, but safely, not. Right. I was actually there this summer. Um, yeah. And it's not safe. Are Jews white? We are being called white supremacists. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I so I grew up in a majority Jewish town. I feel that my experiences in regards to whiteness, I feel much more akin to when I hear white passing people of other ethnic minorities talk about their experiences with whiteness, where it's like I'm aware that I move through the world, you know, perceived to some degree as white. Sometimes people clock me as Jewish or Mediterranean or... Not to, you know, get, <laughs> not to like blow up my spot, but like before I transitioned, I definitely had the like swarthy Jew genes. Right. And so at that time, when, before I transitioned, I was, a lot of times people thought I was Lebanese or North African. Right. Or, you know. And so, and there's also the reality that genetics shows us that Jews are genetically right. Middle East. Right. That's, I say this, we, like you can decide whether or not you want to practice the religion, but you cannot deny you're a Jew because you get your DNA done and it's right there. Yeah, what I what I always say to people is like, the when, when people are confused by the ethno-religious aspect, what I always say to them is, if a Jew is an atheist, are they still a Jew? Right. And that person just inherently says, yes, 
and they don't know why that is, but they just know it's correct. And then I say, if a Christian now says they're an atheist, are they still a Christian? And then they're like, no. Right. Well, I'm like, so what's the difference? Right. And the difference excellent, is, excellent point. Excellent yeah, point. The difference is we're an ethnic group first. And even rabbis agree. The most orthodox rabbis agree, for the most part. I shouldn't say anything in absolutes. But for the most part, agree that our peoplehood and our ethnic identity comes first. And that regardless of your level of religious devotion, that is still there. Right. Um, but my experiences growing up, mm -hmm. I mean, we had bomb threats. Somebody tried to set one of our local synagogues on fire, swastika graffiti. Yes, and then yes, I, yes. I grew up with yeah. that. I, uh, yeah. I was in shul one um, Friday night, and they came, and they were shooting at the – it was just BB guns. But it was scary, you know? Okay, so that is an excellent point. We are not white. Yeah, and I, I also think that it's like I, I sometimes get frustrated because I think sometimes when talking about Israel, people rhetorically right. hide behind Mizrahi and Sephardi Jews and be like, oh, well, you know, the majority of Israeli Jews are from Arab lands, which is true. That is true. But I'm like, that doesn't mean that the Ashkenazi Jews are white. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean, like, like I, so I, I always feel like that's like a not great argument. Right. Because it's like the Ashkenazi Jews are mostly descended from refugees who fled there from Europe right. because they were considered non-white. Right. That's why you have 70,000 ethnic backgrounds. Hey, everyone, you know, one of my favorite things in life, if not my most favorite thing in life, which, yeah, it's arguably my most favorite thing in life besides my kids, and is food and eating. Eating is my favorite activity. And eating is better and easier with Factor. Factor, I'm telling you, I tried their stuff. It is delicious. It is great it is high quality, and they are, when I say ready-to-eat meals, they're ready to eat in two minutes. They're not frozen. They're never frozen. They're chef-crafted, dietitian approved and literally, you heat them for two minutes. Every week, you have over 35 options to choose from. They have Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, I Just Did Chef's Choice, 60 or more add-ons that you can stay fueled up. They had these juice shots that were incredible. These are restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat when you are ready to eat. That's it. And they're really good. Elisa loved them too. There's no prep. There's no mess. I've tried a lot of these different kinds of meals. Factor is amazing and so convenient. It's so great to get home from a long day of like schlepping around and knowing you have this delicious meal waiting for you in the refrigerator that takes two minutes to heat up. And you can pause, you can reschedule your deliveries at any time. It is a great solution for those nights and days that you're looking for fast, great, delicious options with no cooking required. Okay? And Factor is less expensive than takeout. So what are you going to do? Because I'm telling you, you have to believe me. I never lie. Factor is amazing. You're going to head to Factor Meals, F-A-C-T. 
T-O-R-M-E-A-L-S dot com slash Judy Gold 50, J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D 50, five zero, okay? Judy Gold 50. And use code J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D five zero, Judy Gold 50, to get 50% off. That's code Judy Gold 50 at factormeals.com slash Judy Gold 50 and get 50% off. It's worth it. You're welcome. Okay, so we've established the land of Israel. We've established um, that we are uh, uh, ethno-religious, whatever, ethno-religious group. Okay. Does Israel, Dana, occupy Gaza? No. So Israel Okay. (laughs) I have seen this one, too. Israel stopped occupying Gaza in 2005. Right. Um, Prime Minister Sharon completely unilaterally pulled every Israeli settlement out of uh, Gaza um, and handed it over to the Palestinians without preconditions as an overture toward peace talks. And what eventually happened was in 2007, um, or 2006, sorry, was um, George Bush um, very smartly Um, pushed the Palestinian Authority to have elections because he saw an opening with uh, the left-wing Kadima party, which was founded by Sharon, um, to maybe restart peace talks. But he wanted the um, Palestinian public to have buy-in to the process. And so Israel pressed the PA and pressed the Americans to bar Hamas from running in those elections. Right. The PA, which was run by the party Fatah, which was um, Yasser Arafat's party, mm-hmm. stupidly thought that there was no way that they wouldn't win. And what ended up happening was Hamas won. Um, and I don't need to get into all the reasons why um, this eventually happened. But basically what eventually happened is there was like an intra little mini Palestinian civil war that happened. Hamas took over the Gaza Strip by force. They assassinated all Fatah politicians and moderate politicians generally in the Strip. And then in response, eventually Israel and Egypt placed a blockade on the Gaza Strip. There are some who argue that because the blockade controls so much of Palestinian life, that it still constitutes an occupation. Like the UN still says that it's occupied, but I think that it's hard to make that argument when um, there's not a single Jewish person who lives in the Gaza Strip. Right. Not a single Israeli citizen who lives in the Gaza Strip. Right. And so for me, I'm like, something could still cause harm, like the blockade absolutely causes humanitarian harm without it being the same thing as something else. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And it's there for safety. Is that correct? Correct. The blockade was um, implemented to try and keep Hamas from being able to access materials to build weapons to attack Israel. And we're seeing that right now, like the whole thing with the argument over the fuel. Right. The New York Times Times just confirmed Israeli reporting yesterday that um, Gaza, uh, that, that Hamas has stolen enough fuel to last them three months. Right. From... Palestinian citizens and aid organizations. Right. So those those fears are well founded. They're right. not just made. Up. Yeah. Are 
Gazans allowed to come to Israel to work, to shop, to are they allowed into Israel? Um, it's a complicated picture. So yes, the, the uh, broad well, answer, should yes. we say Palestinians are Palestinians allowed to come to Israel to do commerce and work? Yes. Yeah. Are Israelis allowed to go into uh, Gaza? No. Are Israelis allowed to go into other Arab nations? Um, it depends. Um, some Arab nations, yes. Right. Um, uh, many, no. Oh, right. So they could go to any nation that has a peace treaty with them. Right. Um, so Morocco, Jordan, Egypt, um, now the UAE, um, you know, there's, and then there are countries that don't have a peace deal with them where, it, you know, you can still travel there with some degree of safety, like Tunisia hosts, although, I mean, we just had a anti-Semitic right. riot in Tunisia the other day, but generally in the past, Tunisia hosts like a Jewish pilgrimage there every year. Um, so Yes, but it's a mixed very limited. Sure. So, yeah. um, I this last time I went to Israel, they did not stamp my passport. Uh, they're stopped. Yes. They stopped stamping your passport. Same. Can you explain why that is? Yeah. So, if you are an American or anyone without an Israeli passport, anyone who's a non-Israeli citizen, um, they'll place a sticker yep. in your passport instead of stamp it. So that you won't get risk being detained if you visit a country that doesn't have diplomatic relations. Yes. Israel. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that is so that we have a little bit of freedom. Okay. Is Gaza an open air prison? To me, that's a complicated one. Um, I think to a certain degree, yes. Um, I think the we could get into all of the complicated reasons for why that happened. Um, it is in part due to the blockade, which controls what gets in and out of Gaza and controls the airspace, controls the sea space, controls the border. Also, again, reiterating, <laughs> Egypt also takes part in this blockade. It is not only Israel. But on the other hand, you have Hamas, who has, you know, basically takes humanitarian aid and takes all of the resources that are meant to go to their citizens. And instead they, you know, build a network of tunnels underneath Gaza to try and carry out attacks on Israel. Um, there was a news, Newsweek article I read the other day that was talking about how in 2015, Israel offered a um, complete lifting of the blockade with like major, major, right. both Egyptian and Israeli financial investment in the Strip. Um, the building of a new city on the Gaza-Egyptian border. I read that, yeah. All, yeah, all of this stuff. And in exchange for a five-year ceasefire with Hamas, and they rejected it. Right. So it's like, yes, the blockade has caused a lot of humanitarian harm. We can't ignore that. Also, the like repeated bombings of the Strip when conflagrations happen has also caused a lot of humanitarian harm. We can't ignore that. But we also can talk about two things at once, right? right? We can talk about that and acknowledge that that's harmed Palestinian civilians. We can acknowledge why it was put in place in the first place, which was that it was a reaction to Hamas attacking Israel. 
And we can also acknowledge the things that Hamas has done that have also harmed their own civilians. Right. Where did the funds that built the tunnels and their ammunition, where did all the funds that uh, Hamas is using, where did they come from and what were they intended for? Originally, yeah. So there's a few sources. Um, the first one is stealing from humanitarian aid, which is meant for Palestinian civilians living in Gaza to be able to live a better life. Right. Um, so that's one part of it. Another part of it is global financing that comes in through Qatar um, and comes in through other uh, bank accounts. Right now, there's an investigation going on in Switzerland over money being funnel funneled to Hamas through Switzerland. And also Iran. Iran, the Iranian government funds a lot of Hamas's operations. Um, they also supply them with weapons. Um, this is also true of Hezbollah in the north. Um, and, you know, we and then on top of that, right now you have most of Hamas's leadership does not live in Gaza. Right. They live in cushy villas in right. Doha, in Qatar or in Turkey. That's that's where they live. Right. So they're carrying out this war from these cushy villas that is going to kill a bunch of their civilians. And it's not they're not going to be affected in any way whatsoever. I, I think it's the height of hypocrisy, personally. Do, are women allowed to vote in the elections uh, in Gaza? That's actually a good question that I don't know the answer to. I believe so. There's so the last election, I mean, I would say yes, because the last election I just told my friend been, no, but whatever. Yeah, Go ahead. There hasn't been an election since right, 2006. That's six, yeah. Before Hamas took control of the street. Yeah, I wonder if 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 I yeah. mean I know women are very limited over there. Um, yes, they are. They can't get a divorce. They can't um it's it's very anti woman over there. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes, correct. I mean, it's their their version of, you know, Hamas's goal. Also, we need to talk about this. Hamas's goal is not indigenous rights. Right. Hamas's goal is restoring the Arab caliphate. But in their version, the Ar this is not the Arab caliphate of like Al-Andalus or the Fatimid dynasty, which were like these liberal, egalitarian, filled with art and poetry caliphates, their version of the caliphate is like ISIS-style caliphate. And their goal is to restore a caliphate of all of the historically Arab lands from the height of the Arab empire, and then take over the world. That's what they want. In their charter, does it say to kill all the Jews and Israel does not have a right to exist? Yes. Okay. I mean, they they there was a point where they then removed that from their charter and we're trying to put on this more moderate face. Right, right. But I I, I think their actions make it yeah. very clear that uh, their original charter stands on this one. When people shout from the river to the sea, can you explain what that means and how that makes a Jew feel? Yes. So in the past, from the river to the sea has been used by people who believe that Jews should have no national rights on this land to say that basically all of the land from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River is rightfully Arab lands or Palestinian lands, which we can get into 
the different why I say Arab or Palestinian later. But anyway, um, so traditionally it was used as like a clarion call by um, organizations that carried that often carried out acts of terror against Israeli civilians. And so when a Jew hears from the river to the sea, oftentimes what we hear is a call to dismantle Israel and then get rid of all of the Jews who live in the land. I will say I've spoken to some leftist friends who say that when they say it, they mean like a binational state from the river to the sea between Israelis and Palestinians. But I'm like, that's not, that might be how you mean it. That's not the origins right, of, of the phrase. Right. And it's the origins of the phrase that are sort of indelible to most Jews that we're always going to hear as sort of a call to arms um, to destroy Israel. Just to go back a little, Gaza, um, before Hamas, quote unquote, won the election, what was it? And, and before they, you know, when Israel had occupied it, what what was the land like? What was, you know, how does it differ from the way it is now? Yeah, I mean, I'm I want to be careful to like portray it as like some beautiful utopia of right. coexistence because it it wasn't. Right. I mean, it was still militarily occupied. However, you hear stories of like, you know, people who used to live in the South who talk wistfully about how they miss like meeting their Palestinian friends for lunch and like going and getting coffee and whatever. And like, yes, there's a problem that like these people were militarily occupied and didn't have citizenship. Right. That is a big problem. Um, or like national rights. Right. <laughs> like, like I don't want to yeah. um, discount that. It, it was bad. But there was more freedom of movement. There was more Jewish-Palestinian interaction, which was... I actually talked about this the other day on my Instagram about how before the Second Intifada, there generally was just a lot more Jewish-Palestinian interaction that happened. And so it was easier to find common ground right. with each other. Right. And I think the worst thing as far as like advancing peace that's been a result of sort of the last 20 years is the fact that now Jews and Palestinians are so separated right. from each other. And so they don't have actual relationships to sort of hold stereotypes up against. Right. That's why we went to Roots, <laughs> that, that, uh, this, there's an organization called Roots where Palestinians and Jews meet. Um, we, we went there this summer and it was just amazing that they, yeah. you know, how much we have in common, um, yeah. and how they were taught to just hate us. Um, now the Hamas, again, with the money, they could have built schools and they could have built playground. They could have created jobs. They could have made it a, a sort of utopia, they not a yes or no. Yeah, they, they, I wouldn't say utopia uh, because right. they'd still be occupied. Right. But, but like, yes, correct. They could have done many, many other things with all of that money other than try and turn Gaza into a platform for war, right. which is what they did. Um, and to me, that sort of underscores the fact that Hamas is not interested in peace you know, it's always, this dispute has always been over as, as like simplistic as it is to say over who has rights to all of the land. Right. 
And we see this on the far right in Israel with Netanyahu talking about demographic change in the West Bank, which is should terrify anyone because right. when I hear demographic change, I hear a euphemism for ethnic cleansing. Right. And um, talking about annexing the West Bank and all of the people who are in his government now, Ben Gavir, Smotrich, all, all of, I totally just butchered his name, but whatever. Who gives um, yeah. We don't care. That are these <laughs> far right sort of agitators who they see all of the land is rightfully Jewish and wanting to, right. you know, and Hamas is the other extreme. They see right. all of the land is rightfully, they don't, they don't differentiate, but uh, maybe we can get into this later, differentiate between Palestinian and Arab. So they see all the land is rightfully Arab. Their motivations are expressly. But most people, let's just say, most people don't agree with both, with both of those uh, Correct. Yes. Yeah. If, yes. And if the you, pe- uh, can you also explain that the people who were murdered, held hostage, beheaded, burned, raped, were mostly people who wanted peace and a two-state yeah, solution? They, yeah. What they call the Gaza envelope right. is sort of known for being a place where there are a lot of sort of like hippie, peacenik sort of types. Right. Um, and there were multiple peace activists who were murdered. Um, I personally have a friend who runs a humanitarian organization um, who four of her workers were killed at the uh, music festival. They actually, they weren't there as attendees. They went down there to help out some kids because they're- Oh, LM? Is-, is that LM? Yeah, yes, LM. I love LM. I yeah. did their, yes. That is yeah. so, I know. Yeah, awful. Yeah, yeah it's just been horrible. And- and also, I think people don't realize within Israel, a lot of the people who are protesting Netanyahu right now, a lot of those protests are being led by families of the dead and right. families of the hostages. Right. Now, is or has Israel ever committed genocide? <laughs> so... This sort of gets back to what I was saying, where it's like something can be bad without resorting to a specific word to describe it that doesn't actually fit. The crime of genocide has a an actual legal definition. It's a crime of intent, which means that there has to be an intent established by the government to wipe out a particular ethnic group, nationality, religious group, or racial group. And someone who has an intent to carry out a genocide doesn't try to evacuate a million people from the north of the Gaza Strip, doesn't drop a bunch of flyers to uh, get people to evacuate, doesn't hack into televisions to try and get people to evacuate, doesn't give people 24 hours notice before they strike us. Like, those are not the actions of a government with the intent of genocide. I will say personally, I th- there there is, of course, the issue of Hamas embedding themselves in the civilian population. I will say personally that to me, having watched previous wars and given my area of study, I think I see I th- uh, what I would describe as a lot more casualness about civilian collateral damage than there's been in the past. To me, it does sort of feel like Bibi Netanyahu is like out for revenge in a way that is a little scary to me. I think that the 
military strategy kind of makes no sense right, right now. Like, I don't understand how bombing Gaza into oblivion is going to bring hostages back. Right. Um, et cetera. Et cetera. Like, the fact that I don't think we know this from other terrorist organizations, that, like, you can't just take out a terrorist organization. Right. That, like, you can't destroy an ideology. And, in fact, killing a bunch of civilians' families and then having no hope for peace or a change to the status quo after this is all over is just going to be a recruiting tool for Hamas's leaders in Doha and Turkey to just reconstitute themselves. So like all of these things to me are things that are not being addressed, at least not publicly. Right. Um, and I think that the co- what feels like the collective punishment of Palestinians in Gaza is really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And yet, those things can be bad without it being genocide. Right. I mean, the 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 reality is, I this is I feel like a right wing Hasbarist saying this, and I swear that I'm not. Right. <laughs> it's like when you look at other historical genocides, there is a population dis- decrease. Right. When right. genocide happens, when you look at the Palestinian population, it has grown by over two times. Right over the past 75 years, so almost three times. And so that's not a genocide. Right. It doesn't mean it's not bad. Right, it right, right. It just, bad. right. It doesn't mean that Israel hasn't done things wrong. It doesn't right. mean all of those things. But I think we should, you know, speak accurately. Okay. First, I, this is a two-part question. Um, why is pulling down posters of hostages, babies, children, grandmothers, anti-Semitic, and that's part one. And part two is, if you encountered someone doing that, what would you say to them? Because I am literally watching this on my phone and screaming at these people on my phone, and Elisa is like, what the fuck is wrong with you? So... Why is that an act of anti-Semitism? And if you had, you know, what would you say to someone if you encountered them pulling down the posters? I mean, to me, I, I feel it's, I, it's funny. I actually got into a conversation with a friend about this because I posted about it. And what she said to me was that what bothers her is that the posters, the ones in New York, Specifically, there there are other versions of them, but the ones in New York um, and L.A. Um, have like graphic descriptions of what happened to specific people, and that for her it felt like sort of revving up Islamophobia for the purposes of like state propaganda. That's what she said, and why it felt icky to her. Obviously, that's not how I see it. And also, that's not all of the posters. <laughs> there are plenty right, of posters right. that don't have that. Right. And so I think that people who, for me personally, I think I'm like speechless when I think about it, to be honest. Right. <laughs> like, not only do I find it anti-Semitic, I find it unimaginably cruel. Yeah. And I, and I find it very hard to understand the heartlessness of it. And I find it very scary that Israelis have been dehumanized to the point where 
doing something like that, which is from the Jewish perspective, meant to be an international pressure campaign to get the government to act in trying to get these hostages released. That's the point of it, just right. to level set that. That Israelis have been de- dehumanized to the point where somehow trying to get hostages released and trying to draw attention to that is seen as social justice. I, I know. It's so fucking annoying. I don't know what I would say. I would say, I mean, I see people. Why are you doing that? Oh, because they're committing genocide. No, they're not. We're, these are these are people who are, you know, like, it's so hard to get through to these people. And they've never but, been to, I would say, have you ever been to Israel? No. Do, you know, they're, they're so misinformed. Yeah. I mean, that's like the thing I always say to people when, when they try to reduce the conflict down to like white people versus people of color is like, if you've actually gone there, first off, most of them don't even know that 20% of the population is Arab. Right. But if you've actually gone there, you cannot tell who's Jewish and who's Arab just by looking at them unless they're wearing identifying clothing. Right. Because genetically speaking, we are very related to each other. Right. Genetically. And so we look like each other. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and and just as there's a wide range of sort of skin tones among Jews, there's a wide range of skin tones among Palestinians. Right. There are plenty of light-skinned Palestinians. Like, it's it's such a facile, Americentric view of this conflict that is, like, overlaid on top of a conflict that's actually been going on literally since the 600s when right. the Arab Caliphate rolled into the Levant. Right. And it's it's so frankly, to use their own words, colonial of them right. to try and put an American lens on top of a Middle Eastern conflict. Yeah, that's true. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one, Dana. It has a completely different history and background to it than right. anything in the United States. Right. People are marching and asking for a ceasefire. Did we not have a ceasefire on October 6th? Yes, we did. (laughs) So this is why I have very, very complicated feelings about this. Like I said, I I feel like the Israeli military right now, or I should say Netanyahu's directions and uh, Yoav Gallant's directions to the Israeli military have been a little bit like wanton about um, civilian life. And I think that this military strategy has caused an extreme humanitarian crisis. Like, there's a lot of things I'm very against about what's going on. You know, what I would have liked to have seen was more of a um, international coalition built of Arabs who are anti-Hamas, who do exist, um, you know, with Egypt, Jordan, the Saudis, um, to try and do a more limited operation to take out their leadership right. at all levels, which actually, I will say, I think that's what Anthony Blinken was trying to assemble before um, the New York Times and every other publication misreported on the hospital bombing. Right. That fucking but, pissed me the fuck off. Go ahead. It was. It, I have a whole thing on my Instagram about it, about that journalistic malpractice. Right. And how it totally blew up like a week of really careful diplomacy. Right. To try and keep this from escalating um, and try and build regional partnerships to take out Hamas in a less violent way. Right. That uh, 
doesn't harm civilians in the way that it is. Anyway, so I have a lot of issues with the current military strategy. I also think that it is inconceivable to ask Israelis when their experience is that every time there's a ceasefire, eventually Hamas breaks it for some reason and starts firing rockets. Right. And now they've escalated to coming over the border of internationally recognized Israel. This is not occupied territory. Right, right, right. Internationally recognized within the borders of Israel and massacring 1,400 people. To me, it would be the equivalent of like, let's say Al-Qaeda controlled the government of Canada on 9-11. And then after 9-11, people were like, oh, well, you should just negotiate a ceasefire with them. Right. <laughs> it's like, right. I, I, I know. I, yes, I know. For me, it's like this rock in a hard place of like, I'm horrified right. by what's going on in Gaza right now. And what I would like to see is a different strategy that has less impact on civilians. Right. But ultimately, Hamas has to go. Right. Exactly. You talked about making a coalition to get rid of Hamas. Which Arab countries are providing aid and refuge to Gazans? Aid. There's uh, Bahrain just sent a huge shipment. Um, Egypt. It's not an Arab nation, of course, but Turkey sent aid. Um, there's been a lot of people sending aid. Um, Including the United States? Correct. Okay. There has been no Arab country willing to offer refuge. It was funny. There was a statement. There was the whole thing where everybody started screaming that Israel was ethnically cleansing Gaza when they were trying to evacuate Gazans. Right. Which was just like, so you want them to stay in place? Right, right, right. right. Like, I don't understand the right here. So... There was an issue where Israel wanted Egypt to open the southern border to allow Gazan civilians to cross into Egypt right. to evacuate from the war. Egypt says no, they said, because they are afraid that then Israel won't allow them back after the war. But then... The thing that to me was sort of the saying the quiet part out loud was then there was a joint statement by King Abdullah of Jordan and uh, President Sisi in Egypt where they talked about this and they were like, oh, we won't allow Palestinians to be displaced into our lands. And they were calling it ethnic cleansing and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of it, they said, and it presents a security risk to us. Right. Which I was like, that's really the problem. That is the it's problem. Right. You don't want Hamas getting into your exactly, country. Exactly, exactly. That's the problem. Right. Um, which, understandable. Right. That is an understandable concern. Um, but it also goes to show that there are plenty of Arab countries who don't want any. Right, right. But, but, worse, but Israel is supposed to, you know, whatever. Can you be pro both pro-Palestinian and pro-Israel? Yes. Yes. I I always say to people all the time that if you want to look at how to be pro-Israel or or just generally pro the right of of Jews to exist safely and freely in our ancestral lands and pro-Palestinian, just look at Israeli and Palestinian jointly led peace organizations. Look at standing together. Look at women wage peace. Look at combatants for peace. Look at like all of these organizations. Yeah, are showing a model of like where the soul is. Yeah. Yeah. All of these organizations are showing a model for a path forward. 
and well, the, creating the, right. More. But the thing that yeah. the thing is that they're calling all of these marches pro-Palestinian, uh, and they're chanting anti-Semitic things. I mean, it's it's tough. I I actually posted about this the other day, where it's like. I personally have friends who have gone to these marches that I have had one-on-one conversations with that like are very much not anti-Semitic. And the reason why they're going to those marches is not that they don't imagine a solution where Israel disappears. Like they're not in that camp. And so I think the problem is that those chants, the people who are bringing like Nazi flags into, you know, pro-Palestine marches they discredit everyone there as being there for nefarious reasons. Right. And I think that it's important to try and like leave space for the fact that like that that like there are people protesting for Palestinian liberation from a genuine place and that that's necessary and important. But also to say that there haven't been pro-Hamas marches. Like for example, what is a march that happened the day on October 8th before the IDF even responded? What is that but a pro-Hamas right, march? You know right. what I mean? Like, there have absolutely been pro-Hamas marches. There have absolutely been virulent anti-Semitism at some of these marches, um, anti-Semitic chants, anti-Semitic attacks. Like, to say that there hasn't been would be gaslighting, right. which I have experienced. I right. have experienced people trying to gaslight me about this. You know, the, but what I always say is, like, my personal sort of motto is that neither people are leaving this land so if you actually care about a solution, then amplify and uplift voices that are bringing the two sides closer together rather than driving them further apart. And supporting any zero-sum solution where one side disappears is the solution is not a solution. Right. And is a call for ethnic cleansing. And so I always say, like, look to these jointly-led Israeli-Palestinian organizations that are on the ground doing the work. And also always to call out leftists, Western leftists, as I say, for the most part, trying to, you know, be careful. I love how you're really watching yourself. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) If you actually cared about peace, you would be organizing with Israeli leftists. You would be uplifting these organizations that are in Israel on the ground. You would be posting and reposting things from these organizations, like all of this sort of stuff. And the fact that like, there's never any co-organizing with the Israeli left sort of tells me all I need to know. Right, it's so true. I still, I'm still fucking wanna go punch someone pulling off a post, pulling down a poster. Um, Okay, so we're both members of the LGBTQIA plus community. Mm -hmm. Have you, I, I have felt, abandoned a little bit by our community. I've been an activist for our rights, for everyone's rights, for our dignity, for our equality. And yet I posted something a lot of organizations didn't post right away about what was happening. But there is this thing called pinkwashing. You know, people yell at me when I say, you know what? You want your pro Hamas? Go, go live under their, you know, auspice, whatever. Go live under their rule and see how long you last. Is that a, not a good argument? So I, I have to be honest. I, I think that it isn't. 
Um, because first off, I want to say I also feel very abandoned right. by our community. I've spoken to a lot of queer Jews, also a lot of queer leftist Jews right. who feel the same way. I wouldn't. The, the reason why I think that it becomes a problem is that sometimes I see. I'm not saying this is what you were doing, but right. generally I see um, people use that as like a deflection. You know, right. when somebody is making a valid criticism of something Israel is doing, and they're a queer person. You know, someone will say, well, go try living in the West Bank or go try going to Gaza City or whatever. And it's like, it's not really engaging with the argument. Right, it's like, right. You know, and also I oftentimes see this this argument being made by cis straight people. Yeah. Who, who like couldn't give two shits about queer people. Right, right. And I'm like, okay, fuck off. Right. <laughs> like, like, you don't get to like not give a shit about queer people and then like use us as a rhetorical problem. Right. To try and like deflect criticism. I I had I had posted because I was like, why isn't it my my community speaking out about this blatant anti-Semitism? You know, and that's what really is. You know, this these people don't. I don't know if they don't realize they're being anti-Semitic or. Also something I think they don't realize is, so I do want to say that, like, it is true that, yes, Hamas executes gay people. Like, period. Right. And um, and it's true that queer people in Israel have a lot more rights. There are still rights in Israel that queer people don't have. Um, and to paint it as, like, perfect in Israel would also be wrong. But they are not executing queer people in Israel. Right. Um for me personally, I'm like, I think that argument should just sort of be left out of the conversation um, because it's and also another piece of it is that, like, there are plenty of people I know who are protesting for a, a free Palestine who are also anti-Hamas. Right. Like if you say to them, so then do you see this as one state ruled by Hamas? They're like, no, Hamas has to go also. Right. So it's also like the argument also doesn't really make sense if you're talking with someone who's not pro-Hamas. Right. You know, like. Anyway, so, of course, now I forgot what I was going to say about... Pinkwashing. Uh, uh, that oh, we talked about... Oh, I said, we were talking about how they're not speaking up about... Our community not speaking up about anti-Semitism. Oh, yes. Something I've noticed is um, I think that people don't realize, because they don't realize how few Jews there are in the world... They don't realize the fact that most of us are connected to Israel in some way right. or another. We're one degree and, away from a hostage, you know? And exactly. Yeah. And exactly. I'm one degree away from like six murders and two right. hostages. Right. So they don't realize that we're all, almost all of us are connected to Israel in some way and are one or two or three degrees away from horror. And they also don't realize that like whether or not a Jew was born in the United States or born in Israel is really just a matter of chance. Right. Like it's a matter of like what year your family fled what country, you know, it's like that's right. the math. And you either ended up in like the U.S., France or Israel. Like there are, of course, other diaspora populations, but like those are the big right. ones. Although, of course, Israel's not diaspora, but you know what I mean? So they don't realize that like somebody posted on October or on October eighth, something someone I know posted something like justifying what Hamas did, and I immediately unfollowed them. And I was just kept thinking about like, if I was in Israel when this happened and I had been murdered, 
which is like a possibility because I have friends and family there. Of course. Like, I could have yeah. been visiting somebody. Yeah. Would you be justifying my death? Someone who I've like sat across a table with right. and had a conversation with. Right. And it just makes it impossible for me to like share space with them anymore. Exactly. And the other thing I think people don't realize is how existential Israel feels to so many Jews because there's only 15 million, us, million of us in the world, because about half of them live in Israel, about half live in the U.S., and the chunk that's not that half, you know, live elsewhere. But um, the idea of Israel disappearing and Jews being flung again into the diaspora or just dying is a really scary proposition. Just looking at history, the fact that it would <laughs> reduce our numbers to, you know, 7 million instead of 15 million. And, like, and we also, we haven't even recouped what we lost in the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah we're, we're about a million shy of what our population size a little was over before the Holocaust. Yeah. Now, just think of all those generations that never birthed. We should be way beyond 16 million, you know? Yeah, I, I remember, I, I totally forget the number, but I remember going to Yad Vashem and somebody saying, like the tour guide saying- Yad Vashem like, is yeah. the Holocaust Memorial in Israel. Yeah. Somebody's saying like the um, numbers of what what the Jewish population would be today if the Holocaust hadn't happened, because it's not, as you said, 16 million, it's- the children of and the grandchildren of and the great-grandchildren of. And so I think the number was some, I'm totally making it up, but it was something like like 32 million yeah. or 37 million or something like that. And so it's like the Holocaust was devastating for our population. And it's still uh, fresh in our minds. You, these people don't understand that. My my great uncle was a Holocaust survivor and he just passed away in 2020. Uh, yeah, 2020 you know, a Holocaust survivor from Prague. And he's the reason why I have some family in Israel, because after the war, he came to the United States with his mom. Right. Most of his family was killed. Right. He had uh, a surviving sister. His surviving sister went to Israel, and he and his mom came to the United States. Yeah, he and his mom actually had escaped beforehand and went to London first, and they were in London for the Blitz, so that was fun My for My father was there, yeah, was was yeah. in the army for that, during that, yeah. Yeah, and then came to the U.S. after the war was over. Yeah, and actually his best friend is still alive, um, and he met his best friend in a refugee camp in England who was a um, Polish refugee, not Jewish, but his parents were part of the Polish resistance. Wow. Um, and he's still friends. They were still friends till the end. And he also moved to New York and he still comes over for the holidays. Oh, I love like, that. Yeah. Oh, do you now the national anthem of of Israel is Hatikva, which means hope. Do you have any hope, Dana? Because let me tell you something. I. am. I feel beaten down and beaten down and like I'm in, I, I'm probably in shock. It just keeps getting worse. Yeah, I keep on, I keep on calling it the big balagan, which balagan for those people who don't know is just Hebrew slang for like shit show. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, what's going on in the balagan today? Right. But um, 
I will... S- <laughs> I'm going to start with the bad and then verge into my hope. Okay. Um, I am very, very concerned. Um, I'm concerned greatly for Palestinian safety right now with what's going on. I remember yesterday I saw a headline that was like, Israel intensifies airstrikes. Yes, and it yes. was like, How could they intensify it any more than right. what it's already been? Right. Which terrifies me. And I also want to say that I have Palestinian friends who are also horrified and traumatized right now. Right. And and it's and it's it's a fucking humanitarian disaster right now. It's really horrifying. And and at the same time, I remember I read something that um somebody was on on X, formerly formerly known as Twitter. Yeah. Somebody was arguing that Hamas is not an existential threat to oh Israel. Oh my God. I yeah. Which, Go ahead. Which I agree that Hamas alone is not an an existential threat to Israel. Hamas, Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and Al-Quds Brigade all sort of let off their reins. The one, I mean, they're not all totally controlled by Iran, but Iran is supporting them. Right. If they are all let off their reins by Iran to just go whole hog, then yes, I am concerned about Israel's survival of that kind of war. Um, I think... I'm also really concerned about the war spreading. Mm-hmm. I'm concerned about it spreading to Lebanon because of what Hezbollah is doing right. and also Syria because of what Hezbollah is doing. Um, I'm concerned about it spreading to the West Bank, which we're already seeing protests and clashes in the West Bank and settler violence. A bunch of like far right wing settlers like murdered a Palestinian guy who was just picking olives yesterday. Like this could get so bad yeah. so quickly and yep. spiral beyond anyone's control so quickly to like World War Three right. proportion. Yes. Because also what people have to realize is that this war is a proxy war between Israel and Iran, and the war between Israel and Iran is a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia. Right. So that is what's going on. Right. And that is why the U.S. is backing Israel so hard, because we're protecting our interests. And that is why Russia is backing Hamas so hard, because they're protecting their interests. It's, it's, I don't think it's really out of any great charity, especially on the Russian side. So I'm very concerned about World War III. Yeah. Now hope. <laughs> hope, yeah. That is fantastic, because I'm definitely going to get a good night's sleep tonight, Dana. Okay, go ahead. So, my glimmer of hope is that the peace camp in Israel has been totally neutered since the collapse of the Oslo Accords. The left, which had been in power for the majority of Israel's existence from 1948 to the collapse of the Oslo Accords in 2000, 2001. Now we've had the right in charge of Israel for the majority of the time since the collapse of Oslo. Right. And... There's all sorts of reasons for that, like in a real politique sort of ground up sort of way. But the thing that gives me hope is that after years of demonizing the left, demonizing the peace camp as naive, I'm starting to see renewed fury in the peace camp in Israel saying this cannot be the status quo. This cannot be what happens every few years the way of security at all costs, um, thanks to Netanyahu. And also I should I should mention Netanyahu helped fund Hamas, which is another thing. Right. That that rumor that you see is actually true. 
It has now been confirmed by multiple sources, including Israeli papers, that Netanyahu, that, yeah, he has to go literally. Literally, my Instagram for like the past three weeks has been just repeatedly every so often. I'm like, have I mentioned that Netanyahu should resign in shame? I can't understand. Like these people with the ego. Yeah. And he helped fund Hamas because he said in a donor meeting that it keeping the split going between the Fatah ruled Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and then Hamas in Gaza helps him not have to make peace with the Palestinians because their government is split. So he perpetuated this specifically to not make peace. Right. And so people are saying that like this security at any costs way of thinking has clearly failed and blown up in our faces. And I'm seeing renewed fury among the peace camp, not just among activists, but also among politicians, more importantly. Politicians and sort of like... um, academic luminaries on both sides who are saying enough and enough with all of this. We have to come to a solution here because this can't be what the next five, 10, 15, 20 years looks like. And so that's what gives me hope right now. Well, that's great, Dana, because I don't have any. Um, (laughs) Dana, I cannot thank you. I hope you enjoyed this. I know it was a lot, but I I want people to be informed and to make, you know, their opinions based on facts and education and stop just saying shit because, oh, Mark Ruffalo said this or so-and-so said this. So yeah, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, that like, it's so fucking annoying. I know we're wrapping up, but I just want to leave it by saying like what I always say to people is like the way to stand up for Palestinians without engaging in anti-Semitism is don't deny Jewish history. Don't deny that we come from the land of Israel and that our historical ties to the land of Israel and claim to the land of Israel is legitimate and real. Right. And don't don't engage in like anti-Semitic canards like spreading misinformation and libel and all of that sort of stuff. And then don't preach zero-sum solutions. That, like, if you are at a... I saw something, a piece in The Atlantic, where it said, um, if you're reading something that starts talking about white settler colonialists, you're not reading history. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a great article. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, exactly that, that, like, acknowledge Jewish history, don't engage in revisionism, and then don't propose zero-sum solutions where one side goes away. Try and bring people together. Um, I am aware also there's a power dynamic issue. Obviously, Israel has way more power right now. Right. Um, So I I do want to acknowledge that. Um, But just because of that fact doesn't mean that Jewish ties to the land are illegitimate. Right. Um, And also, I always say that, like, this conflict has been going on for about 1,400 years. Mm -hmm. And Arabs have been in power for 1,325 of them. Right. So there is also a power dynamic shift that has happened here that is very new and very modern. Right. So also be aware of that, that like this isn't a situation where Jews have had the power here for all time, you know. Right. And just adding on to that, we are, you know, tikkun olam is like the basis of our religion, healing the world and social justice. And we also participated in the civil rights movement. In fact, we we started, helped to found the NAACP. 50% of white people 
who marched in the uh, and were killed uh, were Jews. Uh, and again, we're a very tiny minority, a percentage of the population, and yet fit, out of all the white people, 50% were Jews l- fighting for your rights. Uh, and we need you. We need you to do your fucking homework. Daner, that's your new name, Daner. Uh, I like it. You I like, like it? it. Th- I cannot thank you enough. I can't wait to see you in person. Um, Likewise. And uh, can you just say where you, people can follow you? Yeah, um, I'm only on Instagram. Um, I deleted my uh, Twitter. Elon Musk, back. yeah. I deleted it back in 2020. Oh, fuck I was you, because like, you're so this cool. Is a yeah, player. yeah. Um, so... You know, I'm one of the Jews who understands that you got to get out early. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> so I'm only on Instagram and it's Dana Alia Levinson. That's my whole handle. D-A-N-A-A-L-I-Y-A-L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N. You're an excellent speller. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh as much as I did and it was informative. I know it was long, but we need to fucking talk about this shit. And I just want to let everyone know that Monday, November 6th, I am hosting an event for the National Council Against Censorship at Gotham Comedy Club at 9.30 p.m. here in New York City. And it's going to be fucking amazing. Mateo Lane, Rich Voss, Adrian Iapolucci, Yamanika Saunders, Mark Norman, and dare I say, Dave Attell. Okay? So get your fucking tickets. Uh, Gotham Comedy Club, November 6th. Go to my website, judygold.com. Go to, um, I, I don't know, call Gotham. Go on their website or go on the National Council Against Censorship website. Also, thank you again to uh, Laura Vogel, who produces this, uh, Colin Schmeling, who edits, and Brittany Jo Sowers, Richmond, um, who does everything else. And uh, I really, I hope this was informative and that it wasn't too much for you, but we got to start dealing with facts. And, you know, that's... That's about it. And glad my mother isn't here to see this, but as she would always say, so long. <laughs>